of color are dotting the landscape as we near the peak of tulip season here in Albany. And if you haven't gone to see the bright blooms in Washington Park, at Tenbrook Mansion, or elsewhere in the city and region, I highly, highly recommend a tiptoe through the tulips. And bring your camera. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. They face charges that they used uh, fraud and intimidation, allegedly, to obtain absentee ballots in the names of voters in the primary and the general elections in 2021. The trial of Nauman Hussein is finally set to begin next week in Schoharie County, where one of the former limo company operators' faulty vehicles crashed five years ago, killing 20 people. We'll go over what you need to know going into this trial. So many people in Scary County know people that responded or were witnesses to this crash that it's going to be really hard to sit a jury. And after three years, COVID-related things are still making headlines. We'll check in with health reporter Rachel Silberstein on where we are now with this pandemic. Even though life has largely returned to normal, uh, kids are back in school and businesses are rebounding, masks are gone. Um, we're not really you know, tracking COVID cases the way we once were. The pandemic isn't over. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. A look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, let's now discuss, as we always do, what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. All right, we are here once again with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. Let's talk about the top stories this week. And we'll start with what I am calling, this is just me calling it this, uh, this is not how we represented it by any means in our coverage, but a tale of two governors who paid other people to write things for them. Governor Kathy Hochul and former Governor Andrew Cuomo. They're both in the spotlight a bit for things that have been written for them recently. So can you tell us, tell us more, please, about this tale? Well, OK, we're talking about two very different things. And in the case in the case of Cuomo, he apparently didn't pay anybody anything to help him write his COVID book. That was all the volunteer work, or so the former governor would have us believe, including his top aides and some other executive chamber staff who, once again, according to the governor, volunteered to help the governor produce a book that he made more than $5 million on. And then basically the publisher had to completely uh, suspend uh, marketing of the book as the governor's fortunes turned. Now, this is back in the news um, because the governor is apparently facing the prospect of once again being investigated by the state's ethics body, formerly JCOPE, 
and now the new um, Commission on Ethics and Lobbying in Government, a name that never fails to make me smile, which is apparently considering a look at the production of the governor's COVID memoir, American Crisis. The governor has sued and is making a legal argument that the Ethics Commission is unconstitutionally structured because it is too independent from, uh, among others, the governor. Now, the extreme irony of a governor who had a well-known horror of independent ethics enforcement, as it turned out, uh, for good reason, because it was an independent investigation that brought him low, objecting to an ethics body as being excessively independent is marked in its irony, I would say, Jess. But uh, there you go. We will see if this uh, this latest uh, legal uh, tactic by the former governor bears fruit. Meanwhile, his successor, Governor Kathy Hochul, is taking some heat after uh, various private contracts came to light in the uh, pages of the Times Union and the New York Times that showed millions of dollars that went into the preparation of the state of the state, the executive budget proposal, and the uh, accompanying uh, literature and um, production that goes into the, the presentation of those two big kind of year kickoff agenda setting speeches by the governor. Um, as Chris Churchill has noted, for that kind of money, we should get the Gettysburg Address at least. The state of the state and the executive budget proposal are both several dozen times longer than the Gettysburg Address, which is a model <laughs> of inclusion. But there you go. So yes, tale of two governors and millions of dollars. Well, it is never a dull day when you're on our Capitol Bureau, that's for sure. Check out the New York State section on timesunion.com for all of the latest there. Let's move on now to a big story for us that we've been following for a while. I know I say that often on this podcast, but I really mean it this time. Three more Rensselaer County officials have been charged in an ongoing federal ballot fraud investigation. Tell us the latest. Brendan Lyons has really been leading the charge covering uh, the federal investigation into allegations of absentee ballot fraud in Rensselaer County, a county that is controlled to a large extent by uh, Republicans, as opposed to Troy, where Democrats um, have found a little bit more luck. Uh, on Thursday, as you noted, three really uh, senior uh, Rensselaer County government officials were uh, indicted on federal felonies. And that includes a gentleman named Rich Christ, who is the county's director of operations. And I would say arguably the most powerful political consultant slash operative working in Rensselaer County. He has for a long time been a close advocate of County Executive Steve McLaughlin, who was not involved in the charges that were um, that were unsealed, but standing uh, next to uh, Rich Christ in the dock, all of them handcuffed, was James Gordon, who's director of Rensselaer County's Bureau of Central Services, um, who is himself an elected official in uh, East Greenbush, and Leslie Wallace, who's a political consultant 
who is identified in the county's public payroll as assistant for constituent relations in Steve McLaughlin's office. So people who are very, very close to the county executive, but have you know significant political influence in their own right as well. Now, they face charges that they used uh, fraud and intimidation, allegedly, to obtain absentee ballots in the names of voters in the primary and the general elections in 2021. This is a, a federal grand jury investigation that has gone on for more than a year, and it has been running in something of parallel with a state investigation into what appeared to be uh, related matters. Um, we have already seen two guilty pleas, one by a Troy councilwoman and one by the county's now former Republican election commissioner uh, going back to last summer and then in January, respectively, for those guilty pleas. So we will see where this leads. But um, Rensselaer County, a place where uh, the politics is definitely smash mouth, uh, has gotten a lot more interesting. All right. Sticking with the courts, we covered the guilty verdict in a cocaine trafficking case out of Schenectady, where notably Lord Voldemort, the evil villain of the Harry Potter series, is allegedly said to have testified. Please tell us more about this. Yeah, the defense tried to tried to cast the star witness as um, as the worst of the worst. This is a case involving uh, Jeffrey Civitello and his son, Jeffrey Civitello Jr., uh, who are from Schenectady. Civitello is a well-known businessman. They were convicted along with a New Jersey man who has uh, ties to the Bonanno family, a well-known family in mob circles. But they were uh, convicted of conspiring to traffic $600,000 worth of cocaine from New York City to Schenectady in an SUV. Rob Gavin has been following this case as it has taken many twists and turns through the courts. But the verdict um, coming uh, without a, a whole lot of deliberation on Wednesday afternoon. All right. More on that on TimesUnion.com. Moving on to a headline that covers a topic near and dear to my own heart. Winter sports. The Olympic Regional Development Authority up in the Adirondacks has logged more than one million visitors this winter, which is a new record. How about that? Well, Jesse, you are a, a skater uh, who competes at the national level. So this indeed will be of interest to you that the state's Olympic Regional Development Authority, which... Uh, was originally set up to manage the facilities that were constructed for the 1980 Olympics uh, and now has expanded. You know, Gore Mountain is in Orta Hill. Bel Air was acquired a couple of years ago and folded into the state's portfolio. They had a really good year, which is great news um, if, if you love winter sports of any kind. Of course, we are talking about um, ski resorts, but also we're talking about the uh, you know Miracle on Ice uh, rink up in Lake Placid, the bobsled and ski resort facilities up there. They had a, a record season between December and March, um, uh, 750,000 visits to the ski resorts alone. Um, there were big competitions, including a national 
you know, winter college um, sports festival. We did stories about how tickets were lagging, but uh, it did in the end manage to help um, get Orta over the record. So that's that's great news for keeping those outstanding facilities, you know, growing and thriving and seen as being a magnet for tourism that we'd all love them to be. Absolutely. And I will go on record as saying that the Herb Brooks Arena, a.k.a. the 1980 Miracle on Ice Arena, is one of my favorite places on the planet to skate. If you haven't been there, definitely check it out. All right. The last thing I want to touch on before I let you go, the trial of Nauman Hussein is coming up on Monday. We are going to be covering it extensively. Can you tell us a little bit more about what people can expect? I know you're going to talk to Larry Rulison later in the podcast. In in Larry, you have the reporter who has been the most dogged and is the the best informed reporter covering the story. I, I don't at all think I'm exaggerating to say that. Larry is essentially going to be moving his desk out to the courthouse and a co-working space with Wi-Fi right across from the courthouse that he has already staked out. We are going to be doing um, a regular newsletter um, once testimony has begun. Of course, uh, as you noted, the action of the trial with jury selection is going to begin on Monday. We don't know how many days that's going to take because, you know, we're talking about 1,500 or more potential jurors who could be called in to be to be vetted for service on a big story like this. Getting a uh, getting a fair jury is um, will be a challenge. In addition to the newsletter, I know you're going to be checking in with Larry on a regular basis, you know, weekly and potentially more often if there is significant testimony. So um, I do encourage people to sign up for the newsletter and to definitely check out uh, timesunion.com uh, pretty much daily for Larry's report from the trial. It's, it is, without a doubt, the biggest trial in this region since probably the Nexium trial of, of Keith Ranieri. And even that was in Brooklyn, albeit about um, circumstances and crimes that happened in the capital region. Absolutely. We will be on top of it. Uh, tune into the podcast in successive weeks. And coming up next, we will have uh, Larry going on with a preview of what we can expect. All right. Thank you so much, Casey. And we will check back in with you early and often. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can learn more about all of the stories and issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. As we mentioned just a few minutes ago, one of the biggest stories that we've been following in the last few years is the case of Nauman Hussein, the limo company operator who put the faulty limo on the road that crashed and killed 20 people in October of 2018. It's one of the state's biggest transportation disasters. The 33-year-old Hussein, who is the son of a known FBI informant, could face up to 15 years in prison on 20 counts of manslaughter if he's convicted at trial. That trial begins Monday, finally, after months ago the stunning reversal of an original plea deal that would see him serve no jail time and several attempts by his defense team at reversing that reversal. Reporter Larry Rulison has been covering the limo crash since day one, and he's covering the trial. I asked him to join us on the podcast today to go over what we can expect to see happen in court in the coming days and weeks. I wonder if you could just 
set the stage for us. Where are we now with this case? And, you know, what what are we looking at happening in in this coming week? Sure. The amazing thing is, just a little over uh, more than a year ago, we were thinking this case was over in 2021. Now I'm saying it uh, accepted a guilty plea deal in which he was uh, going to serve five years probation. And then also he was going to do a thousand hours of community service. And then out of the blue, when a new judge came in, Judge Peter Lynch on August 31st, 2022, Lynch threw out the plea deal and he set up the uh, trial to begin May 1st, 2023. I remember when that happened, we actually had you on the podcast, I think at that point, and I I think it's fair to say that you and Casey, I believe we're talking about it, we're both kind of a little shocked by that development, right? Yeah, that was, it was a total shock. I mean, a lot of people in the local legal community know Justice Peter Lynch. Um, he's a longtime defense attorney. So in a lot of ways, people were shocked that he, you know, sort of sided with the, uh, against the defense in this case. And toss out this plea deal. But I think deep down inside, the judge, Peter Lynch, just couldn't live with this plea deal, which I I think the families couldn't live with it. And the public was really uncomfortable with it. I don't know anyone who really thought the the plea deal where Dahmer was saying would not face any jail time for pleading guilty to criminally negligent homicide of 20 people uh, wouldn't go to jail. And so... In a way, it was shocking because of the way that the direction of the case had gone. But after seeing Judge Lynch more and more in the courtroom, I can understand he's um, a very tough uh, judge. Now, in the time since that kind of stunning reversal of fortunes for Nauman Hussein, at least in terms of the outlook of his his future there, you know, he's attempted a couple of times to to get it reversed again, right? <laughs> to get it back to yeah, the... Sure. I think he was some t- it was in, I think, the fall of uh, 2022, right? Uh, you know, a month, maybe a month after Judge Lynch made his decision, Lee Kinlan and uh, now uh, Hussein's defense team filed with the uh, appellate division, which is like the appeals court for uh, state Supreme Court. So mm-hmm. it's actually, a, it was a civil matter to try to get the uh, appellate division, which is the second highest court in New York, to overturn Judge Lynch's uh, decision to throw out the plea deal. It's kind of like the Supreme Court. You make oral arguments uh, before a panel of judges. It's very formal, and and you get like 10 minutes. Anyway, that took a couple months to get into the docket, and then you know a couple months for a decision to be made. Well, the decision was made last week, or two weeks ago, I guess, and then what happened was Dom Hussein lost that fight to get his uh, his uh, plea deal back, and it was a vote of four to one at the appellate division, saying, you know, you can't get your plea deal back at this point. If you want to try to get it back after your conviction or use it as part of your appeal after your conviction, if you get convicted, then that's the proper venue to do that. They just didn't like the idea that Nauman and his lawyers were trying to get the plea deal back before the trial had happened. It normally doesn't happen that way. So then after he lost that decision, 
uh, Lee Kinlan, uh, now I'm going to say his attorney, tried to get the same group of judges to to give him permission to go to the Court of Appeals, the state's highest court, to get them to decide this. But the uh, appellate division said, no, you're going to trial. That's it. The 11th hour, right? That was just yep. within a day or so of when we're talking, right? Right. And so, yeah. So, And that was a week before the trial. So there's been a lot of drama the last two weeks before the trial. You know, last-ditch attempts by now Hussein's attorneys to stop the trial, postpone it, get the plea deal back, all that. And they, they finally failed. So now, seven months after the uh, trial date was set by Judge Lynch, we're going to trial on this Monday. Wow, that's that's a lot. Now, what can we, I guess, what can we expect to come out of Monday or the first days of the trial? Sure. So it's jury selection. And due to this, you know, scary county where the crash took place is pretty small. There's only 29,000 residents. And there were a lot of first responders back in 2018 during the crash because, you know, there was 20 bodies. I mean, there were two of the victims were barely alive, but they all died. But so there was an enormous amount of first responders that went to the scene. And then you remember the the crash took place at a restaurant. So mm-hmm. there were a lot of witnesses. The first few days of the trial will be very slow. It'll be jury selection. But the defense, Nam Hussein's defense has said, look, this case has gotten so much publicity. It's going to be difficult for us to sit a jury. And what they're worried about is so many people in Scary County know people that responded or were witnesses to this crash that mm-hmm. it's going to be really hard to sit a jury and also because of all the pretrial publicity. So they've sent summons out to 5% of the county, 1,500 summonses, and they're going to be able, they're going to process 90 jurors a day or 90 yeah. people a day to try to seat them as jurors. But you can bet that it's going to be very tough. Now, the other thing is, this week and, and next, one of uh, Nam Hussein's lawyers, Joe Takapina. Trump, That's a familiar name, right? Yep, yep. I wouldn't call him a celebrity lawyer, but he's he represents very high-profile cases across the country, a lot of like of the worst cases and the toughest cases. And in a way, he's a celebrity uh, lawyer. And, um, you know, he was hired by Nam Hussein to defend him, and um, he'll be missing that first week. For something else that's kind of a big deal, too, right? Yeah, yeah he's representing the, the former president of the United States, uh, Donald Trump, in a civil uh, lawsuit down in Manhattan. That's just one of the things about this case that, like, yeah. just continues to, like, like, this case of the this horrible tragedy in Schoharie County has, like, ripple effects across the country and the world. It just kind of touches on on a lot of, like, well, we'll go into this as the weeks of the trial progress. But, uh, you know, just to say up front, like it's it's not just a story about something that happened in this very small part of upstate New York. No, no. I mean, I, it's, it goes from here to, you know, Pakistan and London back, all these crazy scenarios. Yeah. As I said, we'll go into that as the trial, you know, begins as, as yeah. whatever happens unfolds. But I think at this point, so jury selection is going to kind of take up the the majority of the situation that's going to develop this week, I'm sure. But there's also, you know, another alternative, right? Like on the first day, 
you know, he could take another plea or like, what are the kind of things to watch out for there? I, you know, I would never want to miss these first days, even though they might be slow news wise, because it's true. It's probably in now in the Saints' best interest if he can hammer out a new plea deal with uh, the district attorney, Susan Mallory, mm-hmm. and avoid prison or avoid a lengthy prison if he thinks he might get convicted, then he they, they might work one out. I mean, they might be working on a deal as we speak. Last time, the reason that Susan Mallory did agree to a deal with Namna Sane and his attorneys was because her case was so weak and it hasn't improved since then. So it, it'll be, really have to watch and see. I think Susan Mallory's ready to go to trial. She's certified that with the judge that she is, and she hired additional staff, including a well-known defense attorney. So I think she's very prepared, but you never know. She could definitely strike a deal, and then it would avoid this when it's going to be a very expensive trial. So All right. So that's where we are now, um, and we will be touching back with you frequently uh, as this all progresses. But I do want to know before I let you go, you know, you know this this case better than anyone. I think it's fair to say as as having covered it from pretty much day one and, you know, broken a lot of major things that have come out of it. How are you feeling? (laughs) How are you feeling about this approaching this? Because I know that it's taken a physical and an emotional toll on you over the years that you've been covering it. How are you feeling at this moment? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I'm very excited because the time's coming. I'm I'm very wary about when the testimony about the victims comes out. It's just tough for anyone, even if you weren't covering it this long. But I've heard, you know, especially the photos from the scene. So I'm not looking forward to that. It's going to be very emotional. It's going to be, you know, a lot of travel from my home to, to scary every day. But in the end, I'm glad I'm covering a trial versus just this plea deal where everything, we didn't learn anything new with the plea deal. And it was very frustrating for the public and in a lot of ways, the families too. And I, I know the families are, it's going to be tough for them to go through the trial. But in the end, I think they'll feel better about the, that justice was served. If, even if now I'm going to say is acquitted. At least the facts got out, and and I feel the same way. So in that way, I've been waiting for this, you know, for five years. But it's going to be very tough. We are going to be following this trial closely, both here on The Eagle every week and daily on timesunion.com. So stay tuned. After the break, we'll talk about where we are now, three years after the COVID pandemic began. It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Lepertor. 
In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade. Available now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's talk about COVID. Last month, we hit the three-year mark since it crept into our lives and then took over. Photo memories are popping up left and right in my own social feeds from the early days of the lockdowns when my kids were doing school online and we were still wiping down groceries because we didn't quite know how COVID worked. And we were glued to the grim headlines of infection rates and death tolls. Three years later, there are some bright spots and a greater feeling of freedom. But the truth is, COVID really isn't done with us. I checked in with Times Union health reporter Rachel Silberstein for a look at the latest on what's going on with this pandemic now. And we'll start with a story this week that involves a local midwife, which I promise is related. So this week, uh, it came out that a local midwifery practice had been doing something nefarious. What story did you break this week? Tell us all about it. Yeah, so this well-known sort of beloved midwife practice in the area, Sage Femme Midwifery, Basically, the owner and two of her employees, uh, one of them is a licensed midwife and the other one's a nurse, were accused in an indictment, a federal indictment, of orchestrating the scheme to sort of register the business as a vaccination site and then only to issue thousands of fake vaccine cards and enter people into the state's vaccine database without actually administering the doses. Apparently, uh, they destroyed the doses, so now it's like an issue of destroying government resources. Oh my gosh, that's a huge story. But apparently the story has been ongoing for well over a year. Um, The State Department of Health has been sort of investigating all kinds of COVID fraud. And I think it's just sort of the aftermath. We're starting to pick up the pieces and put together all the different sort of black markets that emerged uh, through the pandemic. And, you know, it's unclear whether they sort of were doing this for ideological reasons, like they don't believe in the vaccine and they really felt like they needed to service this this community or there was a financial incentive. It did seem like a lot of a lot of the patients were making a donation to the practice um, in exchange for these vaccine cards. Interesting. Really came to their attention, actually, because the Johnson and Johnson, if you remember, uh, you know, I think in February of just a year ago. It wasn't very popular throughout the pandemic, even though it was like a one dose and a super convenient for people who are traveling or have kids that are starting school. It was like linked to blood clots and maybe some said it wasn't like as effective as the Pfizer and Moderna shots. Mm-hmm. So about February of 2020, all of a sudden, this one practice in Albany is like one of the top distributors of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine when very few other people were interested in it. And so that sort of tipped off the Department of Health and they did a little more research and found that like, People who weren't even in the country or weren't even eligible for the shot were reported as having had the vaccine. Wow. Does, has the practice said anything to defend itself? 
I mean, so far, you know, their lawyers are saying no comment. And I think we will keep following the story and keep talking to uh, these women. You know, I think as the story plays out through the court process, I think we will learn more. You know, this all kind of brings up a larger issue that I've been hoping to have you on the podcast to talk about for, you know, the last couple of months, because the third anniversary, if you will, I don't know if anniversary is the right word, but it's been three years since COVID kind of took over our lives and the pandemic, you know, essentially began. Where are we now, you know, maybe as a state and as a region, like what what's happening with with COVID and the pandemic now, three years later? Even though life has largely returned to normal, uh, kids are back in school and businesses are rebounding, masks are gone. Um, we're not really, you know, tracking COVID cases the way we once were. The pandemic isn't over. Um, I did get to speak to some officials at the state health department who have been there for the entire thing. And they said, you know, even though people are dying at COVID at the same rates, hospitalization rates have sort of plateaued at a level that is like too high for comfort. Mm. It's really still placing a burden on the hospital system. At the same time, our public health infrastructure has really been gutted. Um, There's been so much turnover. I I reported that half of the county health officials have either resigned or been forced out because of backlash over COVID mandates. And then the state health department itself has also had like immense turnover. Um, It's gone through with three different commissioners and, you know, more than half of its staff is like brand new right now. Um, And so they're dealing with a lot of adjustment um, and trying to get everyone up to speed and have lost a lot of their sort of institutional knowledge. Um, At the same time, we also got an incredible amount of medical and technological innovation, which is really exciting. That was what I was going to say. I said the picture that you were just painting was a little a little on the bleaker side, right? We're not out of the pandemic. There's a lot of turnover. There's still a lot of questions, but there is some there is some hope, some brightness you know, three years later, too. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Um, We might not be out of the woods yet, but we definitely have seen a tremendous amount of innovation in a very short amount of time. In addition to the vaccine and, you know, just the general infrastructure that we've rolled out that will definitely be beneficial for many years to come that we can put back in place if there's ever a a pandemic in the future. Um, Stuff like the vaccination effort, the testing, the reporting systems that we established through the Department of Health, all those are going to stay. Um, and just connections between the various public and private healthcare entities throughout the state has been, you know, really beneficial, according to state and local health officials. On the other hand, the pandemic has ushered in an incredible era of medical and technological innovation. For example, We have, of course, the vaccine, which was sort of developed at a breakneck pace. But on a state level, the State Department of Health has developed an enormous capability to test wastewater throughout the state and monitor diseases. They are able to sequence diseases, genetically sequence diseases to see how it's evolving now. So they, as COVID evolved, they're able to predict new variants as they emerge. And this has been really beneficial when we saw a case of polio. Um, They used the wastewater again to track polio, and it was the first time really anyone has done it in the United States, and now other states are sort of launching similar pilots because what we learned through that is that, you know, certain parts of the state were really teeming with polio, just most people don't exhibit uh, symptoms. So we didn't, they just were like unaware of it. Um, So I think we've really seen a lot of sort of development on that front, and that's developing 
more excitement around the healthcare profession and public health. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Larry Rulison, and Rachel Silberstein for their contributions to this episode.